when I was a kid, I wanted to be either an FBI agent or run my own newspaper. And now I run my own media company called Racket. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. My guest today is Caitlin Thompson. Caitlin is the publisher and co-founder of Racket, a print quarterly magazine, as well as a tennis lifestyle and media company. She's also the host of The Main Draw and Racket Magazine podcasts, along with six-time Grand Slam champion Renee Stubbs. She's been the contact director for podcast platform Acast, a development executive at WNYC, where she ran the precursor to WNYC Studios and held digital and multimedia roles at Time, The Washington Post, and in public television. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Caitlin. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. It's a real honor. I think you are our first magazine publisher. So this is great. First time for everything. And I'd love to start with the inspiration for Racket, the origins of the magazine. I know you love tennis. I love tennis too. But I think it takes a special soul to say, I'm going to make a digital media company. I'm going to make a print quarterly magazine about this passion of mine. What was the thing that led you to do that as opposed to, say, writing long form pieces for another publication? Truthfully, it started with a friendship. The easiest answer is that it was a very organic conversation I had had with my longtime friend and now co-founder, David Shaftel. They really started in 2007 when I moved to New York City. I had been a very serious tennis player for most of my life. I played D1 college tennis at the University of Missouri, which happened to have a very good magazine journalism school. Um, And after that, I kind of stepped away from the sport for a little bit, and I wasn't sure how much uh, love I still had for it, having played it very, very competitively in juniors. And then in college, uh, I was pretty burnt out. And I was a journalist who was working for more than a decade and a half in sort of political media. So, you know, my bio really speaks to the fact that I was, you know, working for larger media companies, but never in sports, much less tennis. And through this friendship with David, we kind of discovered that we had this shared vocabulary, like this love of the game. He had played as a junior and we started hitting together very casually which brought me back onto the tennis court. I hadn't picked up a racket after my last match in 2002. And really until 2008, I didn't touch a racket. And then I found that I was rediscovering the joy of it and also having this really fun and inspirational and silly and iconoclastic, but also very celebratory conversation with this person who loved the style, loved the swagger of the game, loved what we saw as being a very equalizing idea about the sport, being one that you can play whether you're five or 95, the fact that it touches all these different countries. And we felt like, you know, both of us being journalists, David worked mostly as a freelance writer long form for, you know, the New York Times and Monocle and the FT and a bunch of other places. We kind of felt like you would see something amazing about tennis every so often in a mainstream big publication, something very narrative, maybe in an indie mag or a cool photo essay or a cool long form piece and maybe Grantland or, you know, one of the other, you know, New York Times Magazine famously, you know, would cover it every so often with great writing. But there wasn't a center of gravity around the kind of cultural conversation we wanted to have about the magazine. And so we had this this friendship 
they're really, you know, a decade or so in, we weren't sure. We knew we wanted to do something about tennis. We knew we wanted to do something together. And we weren't sure exactly what form that would take. And launching a blog felt, you know, very of the moment, doing a YouTube series, you know, podcasting is always quite, you know, accessible, which is fantastic. And I've worked very in depth in that space. And so we kind of did some experiments, but it wasn't until we really dug into the business model of a British publication called Monocle, which has a very, very well-designed, very carefully curated quarterly e-commerce and digital content, as well as creative agency components that we were kind of like, ah, this could be our model. If we make something really beautiful and meaningful in print, even though everybody says we're crazy and even though everybody is rushing to the internet to give away their content for free, if we do something differently and still figure out the ways that we can make money by having subscribers and by working with some brands the way that Tyler Brule and the Monocle folks do, when it feels really right, when it's really aligned, because tennis can't just have a cool conversation. It has to have these brands leveling up and mm -hmm. the equipment and the fashion leveling up so that it looks a little bit more contemporary. So we kind of knew we could make a big impact um, and no, nobody really believed us until they saw the first couple of issues and then they kind of figured out what we were up to. And it was really from a place of organic friendship and a place of passion that we felt like we kind of wanted to create a love letter to this sport that in, you know, in both of our cases gave us a lot. In my case, you know, literally gave me a college education and, you know, some real structure and sense of worth and sense of identity. And so it's expanded beyond our initial dreams, but which is amazing. But at the end of the day, all I wanted to do was make something that I really believed in with my friend. And we've been able to expand that in every way and include more people in that friendship circle and include more creators and people with amazing ideas. Uh, but at the heart of it, it comes from this very, very mission-driven and very organic place. And that's the part that I'm probably the most proud of, even as the business takes off and we have cooler and cooler projects. It all comes down to that. And that's really fitting because that's where we started. It's been awesome to see how you've been able to reach out to collaborators and contributors who share that passion and just have this cool, I guess, racket alumni club. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what's that process been like? And what are some of the cool creative revelations or things you've picked up on from working with such awesome creatives across, you know, photography, long form, just these different fields throughout the magazine? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's something I'm really, really proud of and that we very intentionally set out to do with the first issue. You know, we made a really specific point of bringing in writers, photographers, illustrators, designers that we had worked with in other capacities that had maybe done amazing narrative long form journalism for other publications like, you know, The New Yorker or GQ, photographers whose work you were more likely to see on the wall of a gallery than maybe in the pages of a magazine, right. you know, and so on and so forth. And we made a really specific point. And those early conversations were always very friendly and collaborative, but there was a little bit of a, well, but I don't maybe know that much about tennis, but I really love it. And we would say, we know everything you need to know about tennis. We can provide that context, but we want your creative lens and we want you to feel yeah. Like your approach to this game, your your thoughts about it, whether you're a great player or whether you've never picked up a racket, your approach is valid. And we did that because we knew we would get, frankly, better work than the typical sort of like sports reporting, which is not to slag sports reporting. A lot of it is very functional and some of it's very good. Mm -hmm. But we knew we wanted to do something very, very different. And so bringing in people from outside of our world was a very, very conscious choice for the other reason that we knew we would be able to get people who followed these writers, illustrators, photographers, and be able to see themselves in our community, whether they were creators yeah. themselves or whether they just had never felt like they had an entree. And so representation and, you know, if you can see it, you can be it is, is something I think about a lot. And purposefully having a lot of women, purposefully having a lot of people of color, purposefully having a lot of very international contributors 
was how we really wanted to set ourselves apart and say, everyone is welcome to talk about tennis in our landscape. The only real barrier to entry is you have to be excellent. You have to be excellent at what you do. But your tennis knowledge or your tennis bona fides are not something we care that much about because you can learn that, but you can't learn, you know, excellence. And so that's kind of how we started. And then the collaborative conversations that have really from the beginning exceeded our expectations. The amount of people who've come our way who said, oh, you know, like Jonas Wood, who's a you know famous Southern California painter who who did a whole series on um, tennis courts, sort of famously inclusive of the Grand Slams, you know, was somebody who I think no person in the tennis space had ever approached. But knowing that he had a passion for the game and he had these beautiful paintings, in addition to the you know amazing landscapes that he tends to be more known for, is a way for us to sort of you know again pull in that whole art world that otherwise might never feel like they have a conversation to have with, with the sport. And we've been really, I think, pleasantly surprised by the people who've pitched us or come to us. Yeah. Um, and I think it really speaks to that first issues effort where we spent a lot of time explaining and trying to show people what it was we were up to so that they would feel like they could pitch. We also pay very well, um, which you know, we're <laughs> proud of and means we yeah. make less money on, you know, in terms of margin. But it's worth it because you can't read or see or experience what we do in any other medium. We put a few stories here and there up on the up on the internet and obviously we share a lot of imagery through social channels and our newsletter, but what we really want to make irreplaceable is the feeling of getting an issue in the mail and touching that really expensive paper that's, you know, lead certified and has been created with a lot of thought and care and the design and the layout and the flow is all something that we think very 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 much about and obviously which imagery and visuals accompany which written pieces. And so every part of that, it, you know, we hope speaks to the fact that, yeah, it is expensive to buy our magazine. You can consume lots of the stuff we do for free, but if you're going to buy the magazine, we're going to make it feel worth your time because we've put so much love and thought and care into it. And, you know, really no expense has been spared to bring you something that we feel like is really meaningful because that's what we want to give the game. Right. I, I feel like I have to share with you that when I went to pick up the latest issue here in LA at Skylight Books, I asked the person helping me, oh, have you read Racket before? And she said, I haven't, but the texture is amazing. <laughs> if that's not too weird to say, I was like, no, I totally get that. That's probably what they're trying to achieve. 100%. And- <laughs> you know, my partner, my business partner, David, who edits the magazine, is such a thoughtful, detail oriented person that he specifically chose the paper stock that we use for the print magazine. And in the paper stock on the interior yeah. is different, obviously, than the cover. He wanted the cover to feel like a freshly swept clay court. <laughs> and he wanted the interior to feel both substantial, but also that you could flip through it quickly in case you were trying to read yeah. a story in between a match, in between like a, you know, wow. a, a, in the stands. And it could still be sort of portable. And the size is considered, the texture is considered, and the exactly how much it weighs and the dimensions and all that stuff are, are very, very considered. And so there's a lot of stuff in the magazine, in addition to the stories and, and obviously the creative packages, like the footnotes, the marginalia, the maps, you know, we, yeah. we like to hide a lot of Easter eggs, even the spine, the printing on the spine, if you line them all, all the issues up, goes on a bit of a journey um, itself. And so we want to really take advantage, take full advantage of the print medium so that it feels like if you're going to splurge and, you know, splash out to get an issue of the magazine or get a subscription even better, you know, you're supporting creative people and you're supporting us paying creatives the absolute yeah. most we can afford to pay them, which is, like I said, very, very good industry standard. And it's going to, you're going to be rewarded because there's all sorts of hidden care and surprises that we've put into this uh, that hopefully make it even better than you, you thought you were getting. And I think that's part of the appeal for someone like me who's only recently gotten into tennis where I could read, you know, an ESPN.com recap of a match, but 
what you provide is so much more well-rounded and I think in many ways more intriguing. And so as a recreational player, just trying to learn about the sport, it makes a lot of sense to pick up your magazine. One, because you've hooked me in with such a delightful cover that feels good and being able to flip through. But also, I mean, just looking at the stories like in the latest issue, I, I was laughing and also thinking profoundly about a piece written about a woman who was, you know, experiencing receiving too much information from men in her tennis class. Right. Um, a universal like, experience. Br- Brittany Sonnenberg, yes. right? Yeah. So, so for example, like that is a, you know, a very relatable piece. And uh, I think that's something that really appeals to the recreational player in a way that, for example, you know, the box score from the quarterfinal at a Wimbledon match might not really reel someone in. Um, I've become, you know, interested in that as well. But I think this is the way that we're going to see a lot of people like myself, recreational players who are just starting to get into the sport, really come to understand the game and the players and the history of the sport, thanks to the well-rounded way you are approaching it at Racket. Um, So just kudos on that. But also I want to add that it seems like now is a moment where there are more recreational players than ever. Like I can only tell you trying to book a court in LA, it's been harder than ever before uh, because everybody has picked up a racket at a time when, you know, socially distant sports were kind of the only ways you can physically hang out with people in a, in a social but athletic way. And now we're, you know, you've alluded to this too. We were seeing every brand come out with promos with wooden rackets and try to do some kind of tennis heritage collection. So in a time where there are so many recreational players, how are you thinking about trying to engage with us? It's a good question. And I'm thrilled to see so many recreational players because I think for us, you know, there have been decades really of people wringing their hands about like, ah, tennis, you know, as in terms of mind share has decreased, you know, the amount of players isn't as as large as it was in the seventies and eighties when tennis really had its boom, you know, the game is hard. It doesn't feel very welcoming. You know, there's dumb things like pickleball that are, you know, sort of threatening to cannibalize (laughs) it. Um, But, you know, my attitude about it is if you can just make people feel welcomed to it, and make them feel yeah. like the the communications they've gotten thus far from the sport about how important it is your gear is, how important it is your technique is, how important it is that you know who's ranked what. If we make people feel like that's as unimportant as I think it is, which is to say, yeah, there's a way to go into the deep end and maybe you'll find yourself there and looking at box scores and understanding them and getting really excited about the results. But you don't ever have to get there to enjoy what this is. You don't even have to pick up a racket. You can immerse yourself in something that touches the globe, that is unique, that has had amazing stories. And not for nothing, but tennis has been on the right side of history when it comes to a lot of social movements, right? Like this was a sport that mm-hmm. helped break color barriers at all white tennis clubs without Cynthia Gibson. Arthur Ashe led the movement to end apartheid in South Africa. You know, we had our first prominent lesbian, gay, and trans athletes in the sport of tennis. And, you know, 50 years this year was the founding of the Women's Tennis Association, which promised women a viable professional career. Tennis is still the best sports profession in terms of revenue and opportunity for women. And I think for me, reminding people that by participating in this sport in any way that they want to, whether that's actually getting out there and booking a court or just buying some of the clothes and trying to look cool or, you know, following along as a fan, or if you do want to play and get really competitive and try to get better, it doesn't matter because what we aim to bring you into is the culture of a sport that hasn't always told the best story about itself. And again, that kind of goes back to the question you asked about why, why do this? Like we didn't see tennis the way we knew it represented in media. We didn't see the tennis that we loved portrayed as the Democrat, you know, the democratized, accessible, global, gender and age, and certainly sexuality and race neutral sport 
that can invite all comers. You know, I, mm -hmm. I play tennis with my seven-year-old son. I also played tennis with my 90-year-old grandmother. You know, this is a sport that people can play and enjoy. And even if they're just buying the clothes, you know, everybody looks fresh in tennis gear. And so for me, one of the things I really wanted to be conscious of is how do we get these recreational players into the game? And, you know, from a more sort of tactical standpoint, what are events we can throw? What are yeah. communications we can, can send out? And what are ways that we can include people? And so a couple of times a year we do events. They're always free of charge. That's by design. A lot of them are invitation only, but we're not inviting, you know, celebrities. The idea is to invite a creative class of people who become part of our tribe. And, you know, yeah, we're, we're a for-profit company that is trying obviously to stay afloat and make strides as a media company with some import and impact. But more than anything else, we want to be very, very mission centric. And our mission is to make tennis cooler and more inclusive because we know it always has been and the stories yeah. around it that haven't necessarily gotten out, we have the power to do that. And now we're seeing our work really influence the internal mechanisms of the sport. When we started, nobody in the sport knew what to do with us. They didn't really care what we were doing. They didn't understand what we were doing. They weren't very welcoming. Right. Um, but I knew if we had a bunch of people who were frankly cooler than people in the tennis space, who were more excited, who had more energy, who had more taste, kind of circle up around us and feel like they were part of it, then the tennis world eventually would have to see that, look, we're not a threat to the tennis world. We're trying to be additive. We're the top of the funnel. Somebody like a tennis tournament selling tickets or a racket company selling rackets, they're the bottom of the funnel. We're trying to get you more people, but we have to make the sport more welcoming at the top so that people feel like they can take that first step, whatever that first step is. And so all of that is very, very, very much by design because David and I have spent so much time inside this sport and feeling like we have some ideas about how to make it better. And so that mission has always been very, very, very central to us. And I'm glad it's resonating because I think some of this recreational boom is, as you say, it's about opportunity. It's about the fact that it's a perfectly distant sport. It's the fact that it's, you know, something anybody can play and it's not, you know, you don't have to have six teammates to, to have a pickup game, you know, yep. and more than anything else, we think, you know, I like to think that racket had a little bit to do with making people feel like it was cool and it was for them because before us, we didn't see a lot of efforts being made to sort of shout that from the rooftops. And that's certainly what we've been doing for now five years. Yeah. And it's what I, what I appreciate is the kind of out of the box ways that you've highlighted the characters in the tennis world, because I think a league like the NBA has a lot of really colorful characters. Even if you don't follow basketball closely, you are at least aware of LeBron James and Giannis Antetokounmpo, right? But I think the average person, like if you if you go to a pickup game on a court and people are playing basketball, most of them are probably aware of the top NBA players. I think if you go to a tennis court, it's very possible that people have never heard of Novak Djokovic. Right. Um, they're just there to play their doubles game. And that's fine um, with us. But I, and that's fine And that's us. totally cool. Yeah. That's totally cool. I think what's interesting, though, is how you have found creative ways to introduce us to these characters, whether that's Stefano Tsitsipas you know, sharing his first published collection of photography, which I thought was so cool. And by the way, like I just saw he came out with a album on SoundCloud I know, that I have to go he's, listen to. He's a man of many talents. <laughs> yeah. So I think like figuring out cool ways to show us individuals. And now we have Naomi Osaka guest editing an upcoming issue of Racket. It's so cool. I'm so, so, so pumped. This is the astounding way that we get to learn about characters in the tennis world that I think is so much more profound and additive than you know, learning about Federer, how he cuts his sandwich. hundred percent. Yeah. It's a, I think the, the mistake a lot of the people in tennis, uh, the tennis establishment have made is overestimating how 
interesting or compelling dominance and excellence are. Those are great players. They're everyone that yeah. you just named is either a Grand Slam champion or a future Grand Slam champion in the case of Steph Titsipas. But you can read about their excellence in the record books. It speaks for themselves. Yeah. You can watch their finals and you see how excellent they are. As far as a narrative, they're really boring. We reject most pitches about the big three, not because we don't like the big three, but just because there's not much to say about that that hasn't been said that is actually interesting or, or sort of relatable. If Roger Federer tomorrow became like a coder and became obsessed with like learning robotics, then I'd be like, oh, well, that's let's go there. Let's see what that's about. And I think for us, part of introducing some of these characters and either taking established names and showing some dimensionality to them or introducing you to somebody like Benoit Pair, or actually in the case of Naomi Osaka in 2017 on our second issue, we had the first big exploration of who she is. And it wasn't about how, you know, incredible her forehand is and, you know, what her footwork is like. It was about the fact that this woman is somehow speaking to and including no fewer than three different nations, identities, and in a very real way, you know, flags next to her name in a way that now we're seeing is is a very sort of contemporary way to see her as somebody who speaks to a whole bunch of different communities in a way that's amazing. You know, she's representing Japan. She just lit the Olympic cauldron for Japan, the first tennis player ever to do that, a biracial person born in that country of Japan, but who spent a lot of their time in Haiti and in Florida and the United States and now lives in LA. You know, just a contemporary cool understanding of who an athlete is. And that for me, just as you said about Brittany Sonnenberg's piece about, you know, getting unwanted coaching from men on the tennis court, which most <laughs> women, tennis court context or not, have gotten unwanted commentary and advice from dudes. You know, we really want to make them relatable and approachable. If you watch a Benoit Pair match, yeah, he's hitting forehands yeah. better than I could ever dream of. Certainly you. But more importantly is the fact that this guy who seems to be great and have it all figured out and is handsome and looks good in his you know flashy outfit with his lapels popped is having a mental breakdown even if he's winning the match and anybody right. who's ever tried to play tennis knows what it feels like to you know come off off the bench and try to hit a ball and feel like it's you know rocketing 30 feet off the court and then you're having an existential crisis and so for me you know sometimes it's about showcasing some of the insanity on the court or the personality sometimes it's about showcasing their dimensionality and some other things they're interested in, like in the case of Steph, who, who's, you know, a creator as much and spends a, as much time, you know, thinking about that as he does, you know, playing high stakes tennis matches, but also, you know, the idea that people can come in and start to understand these people as people. We don't need them to know their names, but know that tennis yeah. is a traveling circus of amazing locations, amazing personalities, some of which have it together and are going to lift the trophy and some of which never will. But that's what makes it cool. It's not, will this person get their 21st Grand Slam? Will this person yet again, you know, write another record? There's lots of people who want to cover that, who are going to spend yeah. countless hours of broadcast television and countless, you know, characters in a written piece, lionizing that and capturing it for history. What we're interested in is getting behind that and talking about who some of these people are. Because they're people, they're people. And they happen to be great at something, but they're also multifaceted, interesting people. Some with cool, amazing side projects, some with a lot of baggage, some with both. And that to me, again, is always the way we want to sort of portray the game as filled with a bunch of different personalities and going to a bunch of amazing places all around the world, some of which are problematic, which by the way, we explore that too. And so for yep. me, you know, really getting into something that you as a new person in the tennis space feel like you can come away with an understanding about and understanding whether that's a person or a place or a piece of history or, you know, even just an understanding of a, a scene that you might never get to experience in real life and, you know, a retirement community in Southern Japan with the, the, the guys <laughs> who hang out on the court all day and smoke cigarettes. Like that's all valid to us. And I think that right. 
unfortunately really sets us apart because the rest of tennis doesn't seem that interested in it. But again, I see that as being a way that we're trying to change the game where people are starting to understand that it's about the people who play it and the places they play in the history of the game. Not so much, you know, what the box score is. Well, mission accomplished. You're doing a great <laughs> job. You. So thank you. Looking forward to future issues, especially this upcoming one that's going to be guest edited by Naomi Osaka. It's going to be weird. Exciting. All I'll say to anybody yeah. listening is it's going to be weirder than you think, which is exactly <laughs> us. It's not, an Naomi, yep. it's not a 120 page Naomi Osaka puff piece. It's a real yep. interesting melange of stuff she's interested in, things that we brought to her. You know, it was a real collaborative effort to show how she lives in her brain as a creator as much as a great tennis player. And I don't think there's a single story about her, you know, playing tennis. The whole point is what's, what's, what's the, you know, if you had a magazine issue dedicated to the things you're interested in, the people you like and the art you're gravitated towards, what would that look like? That's what the issue is going to be, which makes Mm -hmm. me so excited because it's so much more, you know, sort of off kilter and us really than, you know, straightforward. She's on the cover and here's a story and it's a profile and it's going to talk about results in a grand slam. Like, nah, that's not us. So it's going to be a real, a real weird, weird deep dive. And it comes out in a few weeks. It's at the printer now. So I'm very excited for people to see it. Amazing. And this has been in the works for over a year now, right? It's not something that just came together overnight. No, none of these things do. And uh, obviously I don't think anybody, I think a lot of people could see that Naomi might be somebody who would light an Olympic torch or somebody who would, you know, obviously be in a documentary on Netflix or, you know, be gracing the covers of several magazines. The stuff that's happened with her and the tennis establishment in terms of a conversation around mental health was not anticipated. You know, we can talk about that if you want, but more than anything else, I feel like, you know, she's somebody who we had, again, a very organic, creative conversation with. We're not paying her to do this. She's not paying us to do this. We did it because she likes what we're doing. And we think she's an interesting lens. And in a lot of ways, the future of professional tennis. And notice I said professional tennis, not all of tennis, recreational tennis, yeah. tennis fashion, tennis style, all that stuff is, is welcome here. Tennis isn't just the pro game. But in terms of where the pro game is going, I, my hope is it looks a lot more like her. Somebody thoughtful, somebody who's graceful and gets it done on the tennis court, but also can be a really interesting emissary and, and highlight issues and isn't afraid to be an activist. You know, that's a really cool, yeah. you know, carrying of the torch, metaphorically. Uh, you know, from the days of, you know, Arthur Ashe and, and Billie Jean King. And I think for me, that is the way to contextualize her. And that's certainly what we want to see more of in the tennis space, not just corporate, you know, shills holding up a product and, and moving on and cashing a check. You know, I think that's a very dated way of understanding athletes. And if you look at other sports, right. other sports have much more contemporary conversations about race, politics, mental health, you know, in some cases, domestic violence than tennis does. And I think we are trying to push that to the fore so that we can make yeah. tennis have as good of a media apparatus, as good and current of a relationship with politics and gender and race and, you know, socioeconomic conversations as the rest of these sports do. And not to say every other sport is perfect. They're, they all have their pros and cons, but tennis has been kind of behind the eight ball a little bit, despite being a sport that was on the right side of history for a lot of this. And so again, one of the things we really want to do, Naomi issue included very much is use these moments to really on mission address how we can make this sport better the sport more inclusive but also kind of make it more modern you know yeah absolutely thank you because i grew up playing on public courts i didn't even know about the club culture until recently getting back into the sport and it's nice to see that no no no, that's not the way it needs to be there's the way i grew up on public courts is perfectly fine 100 um, that's and, just as valid yeah, so, probably makes you tougher i mean yeah. same here i've never been a member of a country club and i don't anticipate yeah. ever being with being on being right. one but i think that to me again we need to tell the story that that's just as valid as some kid who grows up uh, you know in tennis whites 
with, uh, yeah. you know, a, an open tab at the bar. Like that's, that's not most of my <laughs> friends experience. And so let's reflect all these different ways that people have access to the game and make those things more accessible when we can. Absolutely. And I want to wind down quickly with a few little rapid fire questions. Firstly, if you could wake up tomorrow having gained one skill or ability, what would it be? Honestly, probably the ability to teleport. I am constantly jealous about the fact that I can't be in all places at all times. Being on tennis courts in uh, the most amazing reaches uh, is certainly how I try to live my life. And, you know, obviously when I can get on a plane and, and take my family with me, I, I do that. But yeah, teleportation for sure. I'd love to travel and that would just simplify so much. Where's a place you haven't been to yet that you hope to visit? And I'll add bonus points if there's a tennis court you haven't played on yet that you is at the top of your list because I know I have a list. Of course. And I'm curious to hear yours. Uh, the one that yeah. comes to mind the most, and of course there's a tennis court there, is um, I'd very, very, very much like to go to Marrakesh, Rabat, just a couple of different cities in Morocco. I've never been to Morocco. I studied and lived in Spain for a while. I've traveled pretty extensively throughout Europe, Asia, and to a degree South America, but I've never been to North Africa, much less Morocco, which I just feel like is calling my name. And those beautiful red clay courts, there's always a tournament there when it's very, very cold here in New York. It's like the part of spring where you're like, ugh, this is still winter. And then you turn on the TV and somebody's playing like in a red clay, sun-soaked, you know, Marrakesh club and you're just like ah why am i not there so 1000 percent morocco the second i can get there uh, and have a good reason to do it i will be there how about you what's 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 number one the number one court for me is i actually did study in spain as well and my last trip before i returned to the states was the south of italy the amalfi coast Ooh. and i remember there there's a windy street at the top like at these bluffs and you overlook for a second these tennis courts that are like right yep this uh, gorgeous oh, view like you have the yeah, Positano. Yeah, you have the bluffs on one side and you have the ocean on the other side. Uh, and I yeah. was like, wow, one day I hope to come back and play on that. My court. business partner, David, just had his birthday about three weeks ago and his wife is a travel journalist and he played on that court for the oh, first time three weeks ago and obviously sent me no fewer than like 20 pictures. He was just like, I get to have this experience on my birthday. This is my one day and a family vacation that's otherwise probably pretty grueling but this is my yeah. moment and I'm going to enjoy it. So yes, that court, I'm familiar with it. I too have never played on it, but David has, and he said it was everything he hoped it would be. Oh, I'm so glad it lives up to the hype because that's <laughs> at the top of my list. I'm going there as soon as I can. Smart. And um, lastly, what's a song you like to jam to? Because we have a Spotify playlist where we add each of our guest song recommendations. So what's a song you're jamming to right now that you'd like to contribute to our playlist? Oh man, I have so many answers to this question because I'm really into the Ed Banger catalog. I like a lot of like French touch, Obviously, I like a lot of hip hop. There's one song I've been coming back to. It's not a new song, but um, it's a song by Santi Gold with the Beastie Boys. And it's called uh, Don't Play No Games That I Can't Win. There's uh, As Racket Grows and As We've Gotten More and More Opportunities to Do Amazing Things. Um, I'm in, you know, bigger and bigger rooms with a lot of opinionated people, which I love. I'm also an opinionated person who's very passionate. And keeping in mind not only that that song is a bop, but also the fact that it really emphasizes like some games are not set up for you to win. You know, as a woman, especially as a gay woman who's outspoken, I don't always get, you know, the benefit of the doubt, much less the colleagues of mine who are women of color. And we experienced that very, very much this week. And I've learned to like pull the plug on projects if it feels like people aren't giving us space to be heard and collaborative. And so that song is always top of mind, or at least has been for the last couple of weeks, because you really got to think about, you know, don't play a game if you can't win it. Don't play a game if, if you know, the people you're playing with aren't going to play fair. 
And nobody is cooler than Santi Gold. You can't tell me a single person on this earth is cooler than one Santi Gold. So for me, that is, I don't know, maybe Missy Elliott is up there too. But, you know, that's a song that has been top of mind because it has such a, um, it's so listenable, but it's also uh, kind of gets me fired up in a way that sometimes I need in these tedious meetings with a lot of loud men who want to talk over me. <laughs> Santi Gold takes me back. I love that you you named Santi Gold to the playlist. So I'm I'm excited to add well, that I'm to our Spotify to see it playlist. On there. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, lastly, where can people keep up with you? Keep up with Racket Mag. Plug all the things that there are to plug. Plug all the things. I mean, the most important thing to us, because we're an independent publication and because we try really hard, obviously, to pay our contributors well and to get the best possible contributors, the best thing you can do for us is to subscribe to our magazine, which you can do at racketmag.com. Racket is spelled with a C, a Q, a U, and an E before the T. Obviously, we're on Instagram, at Racket Mag, we're on Twitter, we're all in all those places. But if you could subscribe to the magazine or pick it up at any of your cool magazine slash independent bookstores, we're in the most of the ones you think of. We have a listing of stockists on our website. That's the only thing I want to plug because it's, it's the thing I most believe in. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm also on Twitter spatting off on occasion. So if you find my Twitter feed, you know, apologies in advance. <laughs> I highly encourage the Twitter feed. Also encourage everyone to check out you and Renee on the podcast. It's such a delightful listen, thoughtful listen. And uh, for those curious about this podcast, you can check us out on Instagram at HDYDpod. Caitlin, thank you so much for, you know, spending the time with a newbie like myself. It's, it's a real treat to be able to talk with you. Thank you. My pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me and uh, welcome to tennis. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I hope you found value in today's conversation. If you still haven't left your review for How Do You Do Podcast, I'm going to walk you through the process right now, and it only takes 10 seconds. First, look at your phone screen and click where it says, How Do You Do Podcast, which is in purple. And if you're not seeing this, then you're probably listening to this on a different app. So I want you to click on where it says, Listen on Apple Podcasts, and then you'll see the purple link. Click that. Then you'll just scroll past all the previous episodes to where it says, Ratings and Reviews, and all you need to do is tap the star on the far right and you've left a five-star rating. I thank you in advance for taking the 10 seconds to do that and I really, truly appreciate you listening to this episode. Thanks for sharing it with your friends and followers and I'll see you back here next week.